So the passages that we're going to look at this morning is Ephesians chapter five, chapter five, sorry, and precisely 19 and 20. But for context purposes, we will look also from verse 15, and then we will jump over to Hebrews chapter 24, where we will spend some time there as well. And then next week. Branching off from Hebrews 24, we're going to zoom in on Hebrews chapter 20, chapter 10, 25. And I know you've heard multiple sermons from Hebrews 10, 25 over this past year plus, but I trust that next week my little spin on it will be some kind of encouragement to you as well. So as I said, this is from a larger series that I did about the one another's in scripture. So this morning I want to highlight and focus on the topic ministering to one another as seen in Ephesians 5:15 to 20 and Hebrews 10:24. So let us get right into the text. Paul says in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. A little excerpt from William Schultz. He writes, people need people. Lori was about three when one night she requested my aid in getting undressed. I was downstairs and she was upstairs. You know how... To undress yourself, I reminded her. Yes, she explained, but sometimes people need people anyway. Even if they do not know how, or even if they do know how to do things by themselves. And that was this little girl reminding her dad that we need each other, we need people, even in scenarios where we are already familiar with how to do things, or sometimes we think we know how to do things. But the phrase one another is derived from a Greek word, which means each other, mutual, or reciprocally. It occurs about 100 times in the New Testament, and approximately 59 of those occurrences are specific commands teaching us how to and how not to relate to one another. Obedience to these commands is an imperative. It forms the basis for all true Christian community and has a direct impact on our witness to the world, as we see in John 13, verse 35. In addition to this Greek word that is you, the Bible uses other phrases to instruct us how to relate to each other. 
And with this in mind, I'm going to present, as I said, the Ephesians 1 about speaking to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Essential to the life of the church is the gathering of the believers to worship corporately and to minister to each other. And there are matters pertaining to the ministry and to ministering to each other that is extremely hard, if not impossible, to accomplish virtually. And we will dive into that more next week in Hebrews 10.25. But not only is it hard, if not impossible, to do many of the things that we would be able to do corporately in person, there are absolute essentials to our ministering to each other. And Paul will highlight these in Ephesians 5.19. But I want you to pay attention. I want you to see what premise Paul uses with these ministering to one another, with these singing to each other, using psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, what he uses to qualify this ministering is in verse 18. He reminds the believers in Ephesus that they ought to be, and by definition and by implication and by application, he's talking to us as well, that we ought to be filled with the Spirit. And this, of course, we know is a direct command from God Himself. And this command, like every other command in Scripture, ought to be obeyed. The verb of this being filled or be filled with the Spirit is in the plural form. So this means it applies to all believers, not just a selected few. It applies to, as John would put it in 1 John, those who are born of God, not just a selected few, not just the church in Ephesus, not just the people in John's era, not just the people who were living in the first century, but to every single believer. But another thing that is worth noting about this verb is that it is in the present tense. And what this means is it's describing for us a continuous action. So not only is it for all believers, for all times, everywhere, it's a continuous action. So in other words, you could read Ephesians 5.18 and continue to be filled with the Spirit. Just like Romans uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, continue to present your bodies a living sacrifice. It is a continuous action. So Paul is saying you need to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit of God because this isn't a once for all action. It's not like being indwelt by the Holy Spirit where it happens upon salvation and it doesn't need to happen again. It needs to be a continuous daily action. And finally, another interesting point about this verb that Paul uses is 
It's a passive verb. What does that mean? We are not the ones filling ourselves. Rather, we are allowing the Holy Spirit of God to fill us. And I want you to note the word allow. We are allowing him to continually lead us and direct us in our daily lives. What flows then from being filled with the Spirit? Many things, but contextually, Paul says, as a result of being filled with the Spirit, and Paul, you know it in verse 18, says, don't be filled with wine. Don't be controlled with wine. Don't be controlled. And in modern society, we know that alcohol is deemed or termed as a spirit as well. So Paul says, that is not the spirit that ought to control the believer. It is the Holy Spirit of God. But as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit, here are a few things that Paul highlights that will automatically happen in the context of us ministering to each other. And Paul uses four Greek participles here. He says, speak, make music, or make melody, giving thanks, and submit to each other. And of course, these are all modified by being filled with the Spirit. So us ministering to each other is a direct result of us being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So Paul says, speak to yourselves, speak to one another. And the speaking is not to yourselves as in the form of a soliloquy. You're not driving down the road on the 401 or the 115 or the highway 28 and you're speaking to yourself. That's not what Paul is saying. Now you can't do that if you so desire. But this isn't what Paul is highlighting. This isn't the point that Paul is trying to bring across here. When Paul says, speak into yourselves, he's saying, speak into each other. Speak into one another. Speaking among yourselves would be an, op- an operative word here. Speaking among yourselves. Why do we do this? Why do we speak among ourselves? Why do we congregate like this on Sundays and Wednesdays and any other day we so choose to? For the edification of each other. That is why Jeremy sings. That is why Bill comes up here and reads the scripture and leads us into a call to worship. That is why Gary comes and leads us into the Lord's table. That is why Pastor Jason comes here and preach. So that we can edify each other. See, folks, what I want us to get from this passage is that what we do here on Sundays or Wednesdays or wherever we meet is not for my own gain. So I don't come to church thinking, what can I get out of this? And that is the mentality of Christianity. What can I get out of church? So that's why you have people leave church. I didn't like the service. Why? Well, the songs aren't the songs that I wanted to be sung. The the, the sermon text, I didn't have that sermon text in mind. And we have these preconceived ideas 
and preconceived notion of what church should look like to benefit me. And I don't come to church thinking I should go with the mentality of edifying my brothers and sisters in Christ, even when we sing. And this is the point that Paul is saying. So your speaking to each other is to promote edification, to promote purity of heart among each other. That is why we do it. So Paul says we speak to each other, we speak to one another for edification and for purity of heart. And then he tells us how we do this. He says we use psalms. The psalms of David were sung by the Jews at the temple and by the early Christians. If you look at Matthew 26, verse 30. And the singing of these psalms delighted worship. And it engaged the worshipers to, to be in tuned to God. They always speak the language of devotion, the Psalms. But Paul says we, do, we, we speak to ourselves through Psalms. We speak to ourselves through hymns. A hymn is properly a song or an ode of honor to God. So we're praising God together in unison. And interestingly, among the pagan, it was a song of honor for some kind of deity. But with us, it denotes a short poem composed for religious service. Or in other words, it's a song that is sung to God himself. And of course, the same idea is brought out in the spiritual songs. So this, folks, is how we minister to each other. And the spiritual songs I must mention, this is a contradistinction to songs that are sung at festivals or songs that are more secular in nature. So what do I mean by this? When we congregate on Sunday mornings, Jeremy doesn't roll out Celine Dion, or we don't we don't sing those because spiritually those won't be edifying. We don't sing those secular songs because they won't be edifying. We sing spiritual songs that benefits us, that edifies us, and glorifies God. Our songs are, are, ought to be directed to God with the purpose of edification for the body of Christ and the glorification of God himself. And then Paul says at the end, we make melody in our hearts. Making melody in our hearts. Or with your heart, as it says in verse 20. Singing as it is, is distinct, a distinct thing from prayer. It's distinct from prayer. And this is another duty of us as believers, is to come to church with that idea and that mentality. And I've witnessed it. I've heard people and they leave more sour than they came to church. 
and you wonder how can individuals come to church and leave worse than they came. And I know sometimes we come with the burdens on our shoulder and I get it. But we shouldn't leave the same way. If our desire is to come to church for the purpose of edifying each other, the church would be a different thing totally. When we take self out of the equation, when we take self out of the picture, and when I start thinking about this person that I sit next to or sit behind, how can I edify this individual this Sunday? With my singing, with my entunement, with what's going on in the worship service. I guarantee you folks, churches would be completely different. Not just in North America, but right across the globe. The first two participles suggest the importance of music and scripture in being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. An attitude of gratitude is also expressed in this being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And in verse 21, Paul talks about that submission that is from being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So with these verses in mind, it completely changes the dynamic of corporate worship. It should. It should change the dynamic of corporate worship. And as I mentioned earlier, the notion that I am going to church to get myself to the point of a spiritual high where I feel like I'm literally touching one of the the feet of God's throne, so I can be well pleased, so I can feel blessed, and I can feel good, and I can say, man, it was excellent to be in church today. It should change that mindset when we read these passages of Scripture. But as we should know and ought to know, corporate worship is never about us. And I really hope that we get that in our minds. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's never about us. It's rendering to God what is worthy, what he's worthy of. And Paul makes it abundantly clear that corporate worship must have in mind the body of the believers that are gathered together. So in other words, folks, the aim of corporate worship, again, is to glorify God and edify the people, edify his people. And that's not just Jeremy's job. That's not just the job of the individual who stands here and leads you into whatever segment of the worship it is. It's your responsibility as well. Remember earlier I said Paul wasn't specifying who these individuals ought to be when in talking about being filled with the Spirit. It's for every believer. So it speaks to you as well. This should take self out of the equation. Another point worth noting is that if we convene 
for the purpose of glorifying God and self-edification, we have the wrong attitude towards worship. Because it ought to be God and my brothers and sisters in Christ. Gary read powerful passage of scripture in Philippians chapter 2. Let each esteem others better than themselves. Think not on your own thing, but think on the affairs of others. The pressure is on. It's different when you think, oh, one of my goal is to seek to edify other believers each and every Sunday. It's different when you have that mindset as opposed to coming to church and thinking, what can I get? What can I receive from this? That is why it is vital for church to gather together. That is why it is vital for us to practice the one another's as they are listed for us throughout the pages of the New Testament. Our relationship with each each other affects our relationship with God. And going through the book of 1 John, that just jumps right out at you. Where John, right from the outset, is saying, it's not just you separated on an island. You're not an uh, isolated individual in this body of Christ. Your relationship to each other affects that relationship with God. You go through the book of 1 John and I guarantee you that will jump out at you. John is saying there, you cannot think you're going to live this Christian life alone just for the purpose of edifying yourself and pleasing God and thinking you're going to completely ignore your brother and sister in Christ and that isn't going to affect your relationship with the same God that you're trying to build a relationship with. But with that being said, let me ask this question before we move on to Hebrews 10.24. Let me ask this. How many of us, and you don't, even, you don't have to, to answer out loud. If you want to, <laughs> you're free to do so. But how many of us came here this morning saying, I am going to church to glorify God and edify my brothers and sisters in Christ? We might get part A of that, but part B is going to go, wait, wait, no, no. I was coming here to glorify God and see how I, I can be edified. What the church, what the worship leader has in store for me. So that I can be edified or feel edified. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is why we gather folks. That is why we gather.
Let's turn to Hebrews 10.24, where we find another of the one another's that we look at today. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. So in connection with what I was saying that this corporate thing that we do, we have to have in our minds, how do I get my brother and sister in Christ to move from the level where they are spiritually to a higher level? And they should be thinking that about you because you might be thinking, but what about me, pastor? I'm thinking that for them. What about me? Well, they should be thinking that about you. And that's how it ought to be. That's why it's called corporate worship. The author of Hebrews says, Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. And the King James Version, I I like the word that it uses. It uses the word provoke. And of course, it carries the idea of a deliberate, constant attempt to build the body of Christ up. That is the idea behind that word. So it's a deliberate action. It's a constant action. How am I going to stir my brother and sister in Christ up to love and to good works? How am I going to do that? We all know people that take pleasure in constantly provoking Others in a negative sense. But the idea behind this provoking is a positive or should be a positive outcome. And this command is preceded by two others based on the confidence we have in Jesus Christ. If you go back to verse 22, the author said, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So folks, we have a duty to ourselves. It is not selfishness or self-centeredness to do our duty to ourselves, to meet the obligation of ourselves. Paul talks about every man bearing his own burden. No one should neglect, even in the corporate setting and what I've been saying, you still should neglect your own spiritual life upon the excuse of trying to be so busy because you have one extreme to the next where you're so focused, you're trying to, to live out Ephesians chapter 5, 15 to 21, and saying, man, I need to make sure that my brother and sister in Christ is being built up. But what happens is you're completely and totally neglecting your own spiritual growth in Jesus Christ. And that is not accepted either. Every man must bear his own burden. You shouldn't neglect your own spirituality by being too busy busy with 
the spirituality of others. And three things are urged on by the author is in our duty to ourselves. Now we know them. We're very familiar with them. It's prayer, purity, and profession. Prayer, purity, and profession. These are the duties we have to ourselves. To be constant in prayer. To, be, to make sure that we always have a righteous standing before God. And yes, we know that we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But our own spiritual purity... Our daily purity, we have to make sure that we are going before God with clean hands and pure hearts. And also hold fast to our profession. What does that mean? In a society where we're so quick to deny that we're Christians, we so easily turn away from the faith. Hold fast to our profession. We must freely use our newfound privileges of access to God. Prayer is one such thing. We must be very zealous about using these new Christly way, if you will, to condition ourselves spiritually. We must recognize the importance of steady persistency in our profession of faith, and a constant readiness to make a confession of our faith when it comes to that point. So in other words, we're not going to waver. We're not going to deny Jesus Christ before the crowd because it doesn't seem politically correct, or it doesn't seem like that's the status quo of the day. We're going to stand firm on our faith in Jesus Christ. So we have a duty to ourselves, but we also have a duty to one another. It is of the very essence of a Christian church that those who stand in the recovered sonship are brought into mutually helpful relationship with each other. So in other words, those who have been deemed, as John tells us in John, in, in, in um, the book of, the gospel of John, for as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. Paul says, we have the spirit of that Christ that caused God Abba, Father, because we have been adopted into his family. And as a result of our sonship in Christ, and as a result of being born of God, John, Paul, and many of the writers of the New Testament encourages us to make sure that we are bringing along our brothers and sisters along the way. We are not leaving them stranded behind So we are our brother's keeper. We are responsible for one another. We're responsible. It makes Christianity a lot more burdensome. It sounds like that, doesn't it? Because not only am I responsible for my own spirituality, but I'm also responsible for my brothers and sisters. And if I see them lagging, I need to do something about that. That is what the author is saying here. 
We have to consider, we have to put into mind, how am I going to bring this individual from this lowly spiritual state to where I am or even better? How am I going to do that? And it's tough. As a leader, it is. You look at your congregation and it's just a lackluster attitude and it's just a carefree attitude. And you, you have the same people doing the same things or different things. Some position is vacant, not a new person, but somebody who already has so many on their plates. And then you have those who are in church who thinks my duty as a Christian, my spiritual gift is to sit and do nothing or point out volunteer people. That's my spiritual. I, I never come across that in my Bible. I don't know if you ever have a spiritual gift of volunteering. I don't know of that spiritual gift. But there are people like those, and that's all they do. What about so-and-so? They would be very good for that position. What about you? Have you ever considered that? And these are the people that we have to consider in our mind. How do I get sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so or Joan or Harry or Jane from that idea that they just volunteer and they sit and they think, well, I've done my duty in church because I told you who to pick for that position. How do we get them from that state of mind to where they said, look, I might not be good at this position. I might be terrible at it, but I'm going to give it a go for the glory of God. How do we get them from that state? It's challenging, folks. It is. Speaking from experience, it's challenging. But we have that responsibility. Our call is to serve our Christian brothers in Christ. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. In every church, we have strong the so-called, the proverbial strong and weak. And Paul reminds us, let those who are strong bear the infirmities of the weak. In every church, there are the advanced, the more experienced, the more spiritual. Let them provoke all to godliness, to goodness. Those who are just coming up, the novice, the beginners, the young folks, and those who are struggling in their Christian walk with Christ. Spiritual things, virtue, powers, experience are never to be thought of as personal possession and be selfish with them. So this is my personal possession, my spirituality, I'm keeping it for myself. Provoke others then to love, which is the essence of the Christian life, and to good works, which is essential of the expression of the Christian life. Each may be a helper of another's joy. So we have a duty to ourselves. 
we have to consider, in the process of considering others, we have to consider ourselves. But we also need to, and this is what we're commanded to in Hebrews 10.24, consider others, to provoke them, to stir them on, to build them up, so that they can produce good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. But we also have a duty to our church corporately, We stand in relation not only to one another, but also to the church as the body in which we belong. We are responsible for our personal life of godliness. But we also have a duty and a responsibility to our church. This put another way, one which we are surprised to find in the early history of the church, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as some do. Nothing puts a man's spiritual life in more serious peril than the irregular attendance of church or church services. Nothing readily checks the process of spiritual culture Nothing affords more injurious examples to others. Nothing indicates a weaker sense of responsibility under which a man comes in entering a fellowship with his or her church. Nothing speaks more detriment to Christians who who profess Christianity that wants nothing to do with the gathering of God's people. And more and more in modern society, we are going to have to deal with that. And I won't preempt because next week we're going to dive into Hebrews 10.25 and, and get some more meat onto this modernism and this onlineism that people are so comfortable and gravitating to and using all kind of excuses. Oh, it serves its purpose and it's excellent. We have a duty to our church. When you became a member of this church or whichever other church, you've made a commitment that you are going to be faithful in attendance to this church. You made a commitment to God. By the, even if you didn't say it, even if you didn't think it, that commitment was made. And we have a duty and that responsibility. And we need to be faithful to that. We ought to consider one another. And this means to know one another, to be interested in one another. To be ready to serve one another, but especially to be interested in the Christian well-being and progress of those who are united in Jesus Christ. There are always and will always be the spiritually feeble ones among us that need strengthening. And we, again, need to find a way to strengthen those spiritually feeble ones. So we need to be concerned about the spiritual well-being of others. But we ought to provoke one another to love and to good works. 
And here's a few ways in which we can do this. Our own example of Christian living. That's one excellent way. How does Christ teach us how to live the Christian life? Does he just tell us, he writes it down and say, go and do as I say. He gives us an example, doesn't he not? Again, going back to Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He lived it. So what better way of provoking our brothers and sisters in Christ than living the life? That we want to see them living. That example should be no doubt a certain witness. So we do that by our own example. But we also do it by our joy in meeting Christian obligations and fulfilling our Christian duties. That means we attend, we're generous, we're charitable. We love to do the things of God. And third, we do so by using every opportunity to speak in to others. Living, the living Christian should be doing the same work And this is tough, as the living word. The living Christian should be doing the same work as the living word, which is given for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Ye which are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and help others into a spirit of love and a life of good work. That is what we're commanded to do. So we ought to be the living word. And as I said, next week we will see the basis of this stimulation for love and good works. In the following verse, verse 25 of Hebrews chapter 10. And there is a sense in which we can spur each other on to love and good works via this age of onlineism. However, it is in no way, shape, or form a substitute for the physical, in-person gathering of the believers. Not even remotely close. There are so many things, and we're going to get into that next week, but there are so many things this accomplish. That looking at you on a computer screen cannot. Cannot. Both points presented focus on the spiritual growth of the body of Christ. How we ought to consider how we worship, even in our singing, our praying. How we ought to to view that as a means of not coming to be edified on my own terms, but so that I can edify a brother and sister in Christ. And they can do the same in turn and should do and ought to do the same in turn. 
How can I, how should I approach corporate worship? Is this a me thing? Is this just a me and God thing? Where it's what I can get from individuals who are leading. And then in turn what I can give to God. Or is it what can I give not only to God but what can I give to my brothers and sisters in Christ. And then considering how we get people which a term that I've been using from being to doing. How do we get people from just merely being Christians to actually doing Christianity? How do we do that? And that is what the author of Hebrews in 10.24 is wrestling with and is commanding us to do. To provoke such individuals from just merely being to now doing. And it's not going to be easy, folks. None of these are going to be easy. If you highlight or we were to go through all the one another's, none of them are going to be easy. I've told my church multiple times the reason why things are repeated in Scripture. John, over and over, love one another. Why does he say that? It's not because the people are ignorant and have no understanding. It's because they don't get it. They're still not practicing it. They, they hear it, but they're still not loving one another. So John has to repeat it in every chapter. Love one another. Do it. It's commanded multiple times because it's something that is seriously lacking in the Christian community. And the fact that there are so many of these one another's in Scripture speaks volume to the kind of unity that God expects from His church. Christianity is not a vacuum. And even going through Hebrews 10.24, we're going to go back to the beginning and see the significance of us needing and being there for each other. Ministering to one another. That is why we gather. That is why we do this. That is why we convene together weekly. And may we never take that for granted, folks. And may we change our mindset and take self completely out of the equation when we gather for corporate worship if we really believe that this is not about us, then let us live like it's not about us. Let us act like it's not about us. And let us do this for God's glory and for the building up of his kingdom, for his church, whether locally or universal. Father, we thank